The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to the Best Morning Routine Ever podcast, the show that proves no one stumbles upon success ever. With your host, Lou Need. Every Mondays and Thursdays, we deliver cold heart evidence behind the power of a robust morning routine. Get ready to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Hello, morning enthusiasts. Welcome to the Best Morning Routine Ever podcast. I am your host, Dr. Lunit. And today I have the honor of introducing a very special guest to the show, Emmy Sobieski. She is the author of 100 Million Careers, currently CEO of Performative Speaking and co-founder of Competitive Storytelling. So today we're going to learn about the art of storytelling and how we can utilize that skill set to bring our ideas to the world and actually change the world in the process. It's been um, a pleasure having getting to know Emmy, and I'm really excited to have her on the show. So no further ado, Emmy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Lunis. Yes, it's a joy. Thank you for the time. Let's talk about your journey so far and how you've you know been able to do what you do over the years. So I was an institutional investor for 25 years and that started very young. So when I was when I was a kid, this is going to really age me, but aluminum cans, you could recycle one aluminum can and get paid 25 cents. And so my dad and I would go on walks and we were in a nice neighborhood, but we would go on walks and go through other people's trash and get the aluminum cans and collect them. So by the time I was 16, I had $1,800 from mostly from aluminum cans and some from people giving me a hundred bucks for a birthday or something like that, but mostly was aluminum cans. Took the $1,800, started investing in the stock market with my dad's help. And he would give me four stocks. I would pick one. I picked one. It got bought out, made 4X on that. Then I had a little under $8,000. I picked another stock that my dad gave me four. I picked one and that went from 8,000 to 32,000. And then he recommended. He talked about a couple stocks, but one of them was a friend of a friend's son had just joined this really cool tech company. And that sounded really interesting to me. And that went up 10x. So I'd put 32,000 in. So by the time I was a sophomore in college, I had (laughs) $320,000. And I thought, well, this is really easy. (laughs) I'm going to go ride horses and party and I'm sure it'll just keep going up. Right. (laughs) And I got a little overconfident. I just said, oh, my dad, can he could just manage it for me. I don't need to do it. I don't need to pay attention to the money, you know. And um, and lo and behold, my mother, my mother passed away. A biotech crash happened. And when my mother passed, I inherited $200,000 from her passing. And so then I had half a million dollars, which is a lot for an, someone in the early 20s. And that all got put into biotech. My dad levered it, margined it, and I lost everything. And so I entered my MBA with, and it was before the real computerized systems were working. And so biotech went down so fast, the company that the stock we're in went down so fast that 
broker couldn't sell it fast enough to pay off my debts. So I ended up with an account at a brokerage firm with negative $30,000 in it. And so I had a horse that I quickly sold and luckily it was worth 30,000. And I went to the head of the brokerage firm and I said, can I, instead of just wiping me out by giving you the $30,000 I owe you, and normally you have to be able to come up with like 70% of the cash and the brokerage firm will lend you about 30%. I said, can I go 50-50, 50% cash, 50% debt? That's what the exchange NASDAQ allows, but not what the brokerage firm allows. Can I do that? And he was a friend of my dad's and I think he was, you know, he was living in like an $80 million house. And I think for him, $30,000, it's like, well, yeah, but I thought I was totally badass by negotiating this thing, you know, cause he said, sure. Then I doubled my money to 120,000 from 60,000 in six months because we had just come through a recession, kind of like we are, we're in a weak period right now. The first things to really rally out of a weak period are small cap and high growth and high risk like tech. And so anyway, so I took the effectively $60,000, 30 debt, 30 equity, turned it into 120, paid off the 30, had 90. And my girlfriend was there watching me and she said, you know, there's a lot of people that would pay you to do that. I'm like, oh, wow, this is really fun. So five years later, I was running the number one fund in the world and uh, called the Nicholas Applegate Global Tech Fund. That was up 492% in 1999. I made that boss $24 million for his investment in that fund. Then I went to a hedge fund and I made the next boss $100 million by short, helping him short semiconductor. So I made him a hundred million just on one trade. And thus my book talks about how to make its a hundred million dollar careers because the people that I've mentored from college on are not the people that grew up in Silicon Valley or grew up in New York City. They are people from blue-collar families. One of them was an amateur boxer who could not even afford a state school. He was in community college. Another one, neither of his parents graduated college. And so he was the first in his family to even go to college. And they are now selling their own companies at the age of 30. They're worth millions. They're running billions. And so I'm here to tell you that anybody can do it. And those are the stories that I share. Man, that is um, quite a journey you've had in, in gaining that, that wealth so early on and learning that skill set to actually help companies um, do that and, and know the momentum and find their value. That, that's pretty phenomenal. What can you tell us about how we can develop, you know, say, and grow our personal leverage? So I talk about it as the three Bs. And also, I really really resonate with what you talk, focus on in terms of your morning routine. So I'm also happy to share how that has changed over time. So the three Bs in terms of making sure that you can pretty much get where you want to go, whether that's making a hundred million or making a huge difference in the world, whatever it is, the three Bs are break in. So break into whatever industry you decide is the one you want to go for, build equity. So find a way to get ownership and not just be an employee and then break out, which means whether you're building a charity, whether you're building a company, build your own. And that's where real wealth, real influence, real power comes from. So break in and then 
build equity, and then break out. Mm-hmm. And so building equity is building your company, is building, is owning your own company. and Making some ownership. But it can be taking, you could be at a company. So first you break into the industry. So let's say you say, I want to get into tech. I want to get into tech startups. So first you learn some skill, either marketing or coding or whatever, and you get a job at a tech company. And then the next phase is that you get paid part salary and part equity at a tech company, you start building equity. Or let's say you're at a fund management company or at a venture capital fund or something like that. When you first start, you might get some small bonus based on performance, but mostly you're just getting paid to salary. But later you would get a portfolio that you would be managing and then you get paid on the performance of the portfolio. So in those kind of ideas, you're building equity. You're starting to get paid not just for the number of hours you work, but for the performance you deliver. And then later, you let's say you're at a really big hedge fund like a Citadel that runs billions upon billions of dollars. Then you could stay at a Citadel and still become a hundred millionaire by running a very large fund and getting paid a percentage of the returns on OPM, other people's money. Because if you're running tens of billions of dollars and you outperform, you can get paid a lot of money. But the real big wealth, the Bill Gates, the Elon Musk, all of those are entrepreneurs that started Mm -hmm. their own company and had their own equity. So that's that breakout phase, that third phase that, you know, and that can take you beyond a hundred million to, you know, Elon and Bill Gates are a hundred billion. They're more than a hundred billion. Yes. And then that comes with its own struggles, but that's where the storytelling comes in. That's where you help identify how to bring that to market, targeting the hot string. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So when you decide, that you want to, in maybe you're building equity within a firm and you want to talk about your own story, but especially when you're in that breakout phase and you want to start your own company, then we talk about that you talk about yourself. It's called called the founder origin story. Where did you come Mm -hmm. from? Why are you the only person that could do this? Why are you the best person to do this? What from your past is so unique that you are the right person. And then a startup vision story and a future vision story of what is the future going to be with your startup being successful? How will things look different? So mm. like Steve Jobs used to say that a computer is a, it's basically like a bicycle for the mind. And immediately when you think about that, you think, oh my God, I could go so much faster than if I was walking. Right. You think about a bicycle and how everything is sped up. And then all of a sudden you're like, yes, that's what a computer is. We talked about an iPod. He said it's a thousand, it's a thousand songs in your pocket. So this is the kind of, and those are more quips, but it's the power of telling these stories. It's the power of being able to transfer emotion, talk about what the future looks like when you could have a thousand songs in your pocket. What does the future look like when your mind has a bicycle to speed it up 10x? And that's, so those two pieces, why you, and then what does the future look like with your startup being a success are the two big pieces of being a successful storyteller in the startup world. And then, and then of course, there's 
a number of other things that my boss works on in terms of delivery, transferring emotion. And he was a prosecutor. He he tried over 102 jury trials. His name is Robbie Crabtree. And so he does a lot more in terms of the strategy and the things that he learned from all of his years as a prosecutor. That's phenomenal to hear the the storytelling aspect of it. And then just building your your um getting equity, right? Building your own. Um, then you you control majority of it. You control how much money you take home. You control your time as well. So um is building a business one of the ways to stay afloat during a recession period? In particular this recession period. I think it is. I think it is, but it's really One of the things I recommend, I have a newsletter, and one of the things that I talk about with my audience is that often we look to CNBC or something like that. What are the financial experts going to tell us about how to survive a recession? And what I say to my audience is, you and I, people on the street, we are much more likely to understand what's happening in a very clear way if we just step back and look at our own behavior. So, for instance, with Silicon Valley Bank getting, um, you know, going under or or <laughs> getting taken over by the by the government, the first thing that I with all of my friends were calling was like, we should have a second bank account. Right. We should be careful mm-hmm. with our money. We, we can't trust that our money is going to be there on a Monday when it when it was there on a Friday. So immediately the whole nation had a different opinion about how safe their safest bank account is. Right. right where you just think, oh, I have a checking account, you know, I have this much money in it. And now you're thinking, well, do I? And so there's a there's a local jeweler that I'm friends with. And she said her business just dried up overnight. Mm. Because people are doing the things you and I would just automatic, like we just think, like we see that and we think, okay, is, you know, am I with a big enough bank? Should I have two bank accounts? And if you think about that, a lot of people did that across the nation, especially the higher end, you know, wealthier customers. So that is a long way of saying that you want to think about what type of business is recession proof. So often in a recession, you have a higher risk of being fired. So you could say, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to build my own business, but it costs money to build your own business. There's financial risk to that. It's not just like an obvious thing to do. So you think about what is recession proof and it's all the obvious things. Now really it's toilet paper, it's dating, it's toothpaste. I mean, it's not, you know, you don't say, okay, we need to cut back as a family. We're going to stop buying toilet paper. I mean, that's just never going to happen, right? You might get one ply instead of two ply, but it's, so there's, so it's just thinking about what can I do or how can I play in this economy in a way that will help people in a recession? And know that most of the time we're not in recession. So you want something that can move up market or expand after the recession as well. Because you could spend the two years during the recession or the year and a half in the recession starting to build your company. And then we leave the recession and your company's not relevant. So those are kind of a, a very long answer to how to do it. In general, unless you're very, very passionate about the company that you're creating and that where you're going, 
I think it costs more money than you're going to earn by just starting up a company in order to get through a recession. Yeah, I agree. It, it really, you need investors, you know, you need that, that cost. The people say you can start a business in with a hundred dollars. Yeah, not really. It doesn't work that way, right? Cause it's right. Well, if you do affiliate marketing or mm. right there's, a, or if you do an agency model where you're just, you're selling your services or something, maybe you could do it for not that much money. Yeah. But I agree with you. If you need investors, then all of a sudden, those are the people that just saw Silicon Valley Bank go up in smoke over the over the weekend. And so they have really pulled back and they're they're out there thinking, how do we make sure that our current in companies we're invested in survive? And so they are not looking to invest in new companies right now. Now there's, you know, of course, if you've got a great startup story and you're starting to build a company and you've got a great story for investors, investors are always looking for the next great thing, but it's not like we're in a very tight money situation right now. How do we go about putting that great startup story? Well, the first thing is, is to start a company that you're super passionate about. So if you imagine you start up a company, now there are stories of people that just do database searches and say, what types of companies should I start up and things like that. But most of the time, you will find out that someone that started a insulin monitoring company mm-hmm. had a relative, had a mother that was struggling with diabetes or someone that started a breathing monitoring company had a sister that was struggling with asthma. So it, you typically find that, that you, you find a pain point that someone is solving or you want to solve a pain point for one of your loved ones. And so it, it lends itself to a wonderful startup story. And it also is the reason that you built that startup. Yeah, well put. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, that's good information to, to have on hand. <laughs> um, tell us about your morning routine. How do you get up, dress up and show up? I'm going to tell you two different morning routines mm-hmm. because often people that are, but for not, not a better way of saying it, I'm older. <laughs> people that are older that have, that have a more comfortable lifestyle that aren't, you know, accelerating the way that, that young people may want to do in their career have different luxuries. So for me right now, I wake up at 4.45 in the morning and I lay on something called, it's a pulse, it's PEMF device, which is a pulse electromagnetic field. And I lay on that for eight minutes to get the circulation going. Then I go for a walk with my friend at 5.30 to 6.15. Then we both drive to the gym and I work out at the gym from 6.30 to 8.30 and come home and then make a little bit of breakfast. And so I'm ready to go with my work day at about 9.15 in the morning. So that's my current morning routine. So two hours in the gym, seven days a week, pretty much, and 45 minutes of walking. Now, that's pretty good. <laughs> when I was working at a hedge fund, that was not the case. And what I find is that I am most efficient and I have the what people talk about is do energy management instead of time management. So I yeah. find that I'm very effective in the morning. So when I was working at a hedge fund and really moving up in my career, then I was working 20, I was working 100 hour weeks, 80 to 100 hour weeks. And when I was doing that, I would wake up in New York City time. I would wake up 
at, I don't know, quite early in the morning, say 4.30 New York time. And I would be able to take a shower, put on makeup, get dressed and leave the apartment in 12 minutes. And then I would, a friend of mine would pick me up in a cab. We'd cab over in seven minutes to work. I ate all three meals at my desk. We had a gym at work. I listened to all of the earnings calls and did research while I was on the treadmill at the gym in the evening and came home, would get four to five hours of sleep. I could come home, take off my makeup and be in bed in 12 minutes. So basically starting up in the morning, 12 minutes, going to bed at the evening, 12 minutes, so that when I work these 20-hour days, I could still get four hours of sleep. So that was a totally different way to do it. And the things that I focused on was still eating healthy and still connecting with friends, even if I'm working 100-hour weeks, and still moving every day. So those three things, eat well, connect with friends, move every day, even if you work 100-hour weeks, never let go of those. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you wholesome. Yes. <laughs> the, the movement is crucial. Thank you for sharing. I um, really appreciate you taking the time for coming on the show today, Amy. Thank you. Absolutely. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, all right, morning enthusiasts. That's it for today's show. Thank you for tuning in. If you love the best morning routine ever podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or Google Play. While you're at it, tell a friend about the show. Be sure to visit bestmorningroutineever.com and our Facebook group to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic free bonus content. Until next time.